Bookworm Games, episode 15, The Bulldozer and the Bridge. Welcome back, this is Wesley Schantz. Before jumping back in this week, a quick announcement about summer opportunities. Signum University's Hobbit Camp for Young Readers was a new program last year, and this year it is expanding to include A Wrinkle in Time, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as well as The Hobbit again. And the online camp on The Hobbit is running this year from July 9th through 20th. It's taught by yours truly. It's free, in partnership with local libraries, where there will be in-person discussions and other fun activities. They'll host that. If you speak with your librarians and they don't know about it yet, they can sign up for free. Anyway, the format is like the Tolkien Professors, a live interactive online discussion each day for an hour, highlighting specific passages and tracing themes through the story of The Hobbit. You can check out the Tolkien Professor's work on The Silmarillion, Lord of the Rings Online, really interesting stuff, along with other free courses on all sorts of hard-to-find people to talk with you about fantasy and sci-fi books that you love on Mythgard.org. There's courses for MA credit available on SignumU.org, and they're working on their accreditation. And then for more about the summer camps, including my Hobbit camp, check out SignumU.org academy. Or again, ask at your local library. So then, picking up from where we were fortunate in the desert, not to expire like those dry bones. If we grant that some of the best books come out of the desert with his visions, and that great books from the Bible to the Little Prince are set there to convey something of that experience, we also recognize that our distance from such a place and from such experience does not prevent us from continuing to admire it, but draws us towards it all the more. And here we are, listening on our devices, playing our video games and reading our books and Bible apps with our own problems, to be sure, but nothing compared to fasting in the wilderness. Our problems, in fact, tend to begin from this very fact. Well, now what do we do? For though some of us may be out in the desert some of the time, by and large, we have made the trek to the cities, done the work or benefited from the work of others to enjoy things like neighborhoods, gardens, parks, farms, and their produce, schools, stores. And while desertification goes on in some parts of the developing world, afforestation takes over in others, where we can afford the luxury of national parks. With rising sea levels and rising temperatures, we also have our rising tide that lifts all boats, and prosperity trickles down. Cities grow rapidly everywhere, and with them, literacy, access to technology, and the presence of so many other people. What will come of it all? For one thing, all sorts of great books, art, discoveries, games, all people's attempts to make sense of this world which is mostly made up of other people. And what do we lose? Well. We can stroll outside the city walls to consider that. But it's not Plato, Socrates, and the Phaedrus just now 
but instead a cohort of poets whose work touches on the link that binds the desert and the city, the bridge, which will be the literary interlude this week. In Earthbound, we have arrived at last through the desert to the big city of Foreside, only to find ourselves at a dead end, no way to proceed. The last of the numerically named towns, Foreside is bounded by brick walls and bays and grassy verges. It extends diagonally to accommodate skyscrapers looming over and in front of your party, giving a new sense of scale. There is a plethora of uncertain clues, a congeries of mysteries, so much that it is unclear at first what you need to do, where you need to begin. There's Jackie's Cafe, where the drinkers tell you what you're supposedly asking them about. There's the museum, where the researcher blocks the door and pines for a starlet's attention. The department store, closed until further notice. Gwar. The tower complex of Geldegard Monatoli, who runs the town, where of all people you find Pokey, ensconced in a loud yellow upholstered office, amused by your shock at finding him. Ooh la la. He forgets your name is something other than Pig's Butt, then has his bodyguards remove you. Next door, his father, who laughs in your face until he wheezes, spent by his conspicuous glee. And the man himself, Monatoli, is nowhere to be seen, like Pokey's mom, or Picky. But another elevator is off-limits. Then there's the theater, called Topola, in a reference to New York's Apollo, where some old friends are again ensnared by a contract. So Forsyth recapitulates many of the elements of the other towns so far, gathers them together, and intensifies them, much like what it does with its layout and its buildings. Everything here is made bigger and laid out in a new perspective, with its juxtaposition bringing out something new about it. It's reminiscent of Onet in The Cops and the Corrupt Government, of Tucson and Happy Happy Village in The Runaway Five being there at the theater, and then in The Kidnapping of Paula by the department store Spook, which we'll look at next week. And the same goes for the way it recalls Threed and the darkness that comes over everything once the lights go out in the department store and you find yourself in Moonside. It reminds you of Winters in the cool museum with his giant replica. And as it turns out, the same museum glances forward to Summers as well. There's a composition of other things in Foresight, and yet it is also itself its own personality. It represents a kind of greatness, and a space within which infinite stories might take place. Its personality is expressed in the strange doppelganger copies of the people in the audience of Topala Theater, and in the huge plaster bones whose top you cannot see. It's there in the backyard of the department store, glittering, with a boy peering over the fence. He may be a peeping Tom. And it's there especially at Ape headquarters, where they're planning Earthbound 2. So from these fragments, which we put a boundary around and put into relation with things with the bridge, 
and then relate in the sense of telling about it too, we get foresight, a kind of microcosm, large though it is, of the game as a whole. And what does that mean then that there's no way forward from here? Cul-de-sac. Having come out of the desert, it seems that to the desert we must return. Like that emerald digger in The Alchemist, Gerardo Montague was so close. And I'll read from The Alchemist here a little bit. The old man related that, the week before, he had been forced to appear before a miner and had taken the form of a stone. The miner had abandoned everything to go mining for emeralds. For five years he had been working a certain river, and had examined hundreds of thousands of stones looking for an emerald. The miner was about to give it all up, right at the point when, if he were to examine just one more stone, just one more, he would find his emerald. Since the miner had sacrificed everything to his personal legend, the old man decided to become involved. He transformed himself into a stone that rolled up to the miner's foot. The miner, with all the anger and frustration of his five fruitless years, picked up the stone and threw it aside. But he had thrown it with such force that it broke the stone, it fell upon, and there, embedded in the broken stone, was the most beautiful emerald in the world. There you go. So, when you come back out, uh, you see that once you gave him that bit of food that was in your inventory, he pressed on until uncovering a maze. And you come back out impelled by the Forsythians' hints about a buried treasure. There you'll find him, his modest mine shaft expanded Forsythianly into a great quarry, with its crowd of onlookers, an ice cream stand, a cart of food, a maze where you thought to come to a clear way forward with monsters instead of treasure, and an ulcer from worrying. These are all fitting markers of success in the rat race, suitable for televising. And there's exit mice there too, at the heart of the maze, fortunately, just like the ones in the house south of Onette, that can whisk you out if you're lost or if you're about to lose in battle. There's also Noose Man underground, of course, sort of like those smiling spheres topside that explode when defeated, but these dramatize the miner's despair. And those moles, obsessed with status, yet humorous, humorously they're competing not to be the best, or even the worst, but to be the most middling and the most mediocre. They say, you've fought the strongest, the second strongest, the fourth strongest, and the fifth strongest now. Prepare to face this third strongest of the five. Hopefully when you do, each of them, that is, all the third strongest, you've equipped yourself with bottle rockets, or you've learned the power of freeze curlicue. On one shot, you can take out those, those moles. I, I'm sorry, this is a little tough tonight. I was writing this while playing through that level. I uh, I made a note here that when I got to level 33, my HP went up by one. But then, on my way out, I got a Psy Caramel from those Sanchez brothers, Amigo, having cleared out some item space on Paula, knowing that she's about to be kidnapped. Anyway, 
The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. For me, it was a formative book, though. I don't know if I'd still argue it's a truly great one. It did make me want to study in Andalusia. And so, some of those best books that come out of the desert might be representative of some of the strongest and soundest returns to the light when you come out of that underground of doubt and anxiety. And just the same way that one book leads to another, although I can't remember quite how, I'm getting to that part of the game where I start to get the chronology mixed up. There's no more numbered towns, and there's about to be some teleporting happening, so I'm looking forward to playing on and figuring all that out. But I seem to recall that it is a bit loose. You can make some choices about what to do first. Anyway, I have no way of recalling now about the books, about which one leads to which. But I could imagine a class like that, just giving kids time in the library, like what I had as a kid, to browse and read, and then read the things that that book tells you about, and so on. But that would take a little bit too much trust, perhaps. So, what about a tutorial, then, where the teacher checks in with each student in turn over the course of a couple of weeks, and they go on reading and learning at their own pace? Anyway, as you defeat the last mole, the desert music starts back up again. And when you exit Mouse out, there's no obvious reward just yet, so to try and see if something might have changed in Foreside, you'll probably walk back across the bridge. There the triumphant horns let you know that you're coming into the big time. Is it a photo yet? Not just yet. Only after the bulldozer arrives, and Gerardo's brother, I wish I'd written it on his name, well, he hands you a diamond in lieu of buried treasure. And this is something like what you got to do when you're growing something. Maybe it's the furthest, thi furthest thing from a diamond only in the time it takes to do it. But when you're growing things, you have to allow them to happen. And in some ways, it's like that with the books, too. If they're truly great, they escape explanation anyhow, and they can do without it. And so sometimes I worry a bit that I'm explaining the game when really it's only a matter of letting people play it. Anyhow, other great books come out of the city from that patient or impetuous pursuit of bigger and better and more. The bridge itself, of course, which joins the two, is a product of the city staying connected to the desert through which the newcomers, the visionaries, must come. So to dwell on the image of the bridge for a moment, one of my favorite books, a supremely urbane work of aesthetics by Jacques Maritain, we find these lines that have to be savored. It says, With respect to the work made, it might be said, it seems to me that the element in beauty which is integrity has principally to do with poetic intuition as objectivizing itself into the action or the theme, whereas that element which is radiance has principally to do with poetic intuition in its native and original state. Hence it is that poetic intuition may happen to appear with striking radiance even in a poem lacking in integrity. And such splintered fragments, transparent to the rays of being, 
may be enough to reveal the pure essence of poetry. For nothing is more precious than a capture on the high seas of poetry, be it offered in a single line. L'espoir lui comme un brin de pain dans le table. O thou steeled cognizance whose leap commits the agile precincts of the lark's return. Odor of blood when Christ was slain made all platonic tolerance vain. And I shall always prefer a haikai if it has this kind of transparency to a big noisy machine deafening me with ideas. Yet the fact remains that from the very start poetic intuition virtually contains and encompasses the poem as a whole and demands to pass through it as a whole. When it does not succeed in appearing save in a fragmentary way, it is because it has been betrayed by the art of the poet. And that's on page 135 in that big, wonderful book, Creative Intuition in Art and Poetry. Um, that one line in French, I think, means hope uh, shines like a... A, a curl of of straw in the stable, something like that, and and those lines in between. Then, O thou steeled cognizance. So I had to look that one up, but it comes from a poem called "The Bridge" on the section Atlantis. So I wanted to read a little more of that by Hart Crane. So this isn't the whole poem, but it's what comes just before and just after those lines that so captured the philosopher. It goes, We left the haven hanging in the night, Sheened harbor lanterns backward fled the keel, Pacific here at time's end, bearing corn, Eyes stammer through the pangs of dust and steel, And still the circular indubitable frieze of heaven's meditation Yoking wave to kneeling wave, one song devoutly binds, the vernal strophe chimes from deathless strings. O thou steeled cognizance, whose leap commits the agile precincts of the lark's return, within whose lariat sweep and censured sing in single chrysalis the many twain. Of stars thou art the stitch and stallion glow, and like an organ thou, with sound of doom, sight, Sound and flesh thou leadest from time's realm as love strikes clear direction for the helm. Swift peal of secular light, intrinsic myth, whose fell unshadow is death's utter wound. O river throated, iridescently upborne through the bright drench and fabric of our veins, with white escarpment swinging into light, sustained in tears the cities are endowed and justified conclamant with ripe fields revolving through their harvests in sweet torment torment probably sorry but anyway that one then might make you think of that yearner after nature the original american bard walt whitman and his poem on crossing brooklyn ferry which is found somewhere in Songs of Myself, I guess, but I'll just read a bit from this one. Flood tide below me, I see you face to face. Clouds of the west, sun there half an hour high, I see you also face to face. Crowds of men and women attired in the usual costumes, how curious you are to me. 
On the ferry boats, the hundreds and hundreds that cross, returning home, are more curious to me than you suppose. And you that shall cross from shore to shore years hence are more to me and more in my meditations than you might suppose. The impalpable sustenance of me from all things at all hours of the day, the single compact well-joined scheme, myself disintegrated, everyone disintegrated, yet part of the scheme, the similitudes of the past and those of the future, the glories strung like beads on my smallest sights and hearings, on the walk in the street and the passage over the river, the current rushing so swiftly and swimming with me far away, the others that are to follow me, the ties between me and them, the certainty of others, the life, love, sight, hearing of others. Others will enter the gates of the ferry and cross from shore to shore. Others will watch the run of the flood tide. Others will see the shipping of Manhattan north and west and the heights of Brooklyn to the south and east. Others will see the islands large and small. Fifty years hence, others will see them as they cross, the sun half an hour high, a hundred years hence, or ever so many hundred years hence, others will see them, will enjoy the sunset, the pouring in of the flood tide, the falling back to the sea of the ebb tide. It avails not, time nor place, distance avails not. I am with you, you men and women of a generation, or ever so many generations hence, just as you feel when you look on the river and sky so I felt, just as any of you is one of a living crowd, I was one of a crowd. Just as you are refreshed by the gladness of the river and the bright flow, I was refreshed. Just as you stand and lean on the rail, yet hurry with the swift current, I stood yet was hurried. Just as you look on the numberless masts of ships and the thick-stemmed pipes of steamboats, I looked. I too many and many a time crossed the river of old, watched the twelfth month seagulls, saw them high in the air floating with motionless wings, oscillating their bodies, saw how the glistening yellow lit up parts of the bodies and left the rest in strong shadow, saw the slow wheeling circles and the gradual edging toward the south, saw the reflection of the summer sky in the water, had my eyes dazzled by the shimmering track of beams, looked at the fine centrifugal spokes of light round the shape of my head in the sunlit water, looked on the haze of the hills southward and southwestward, looked on the vapor as it flew in fleeces tinged with violet, looked toward the lower bay to notice the vessels arriving, saw their approach, saw aboard those that were near me, saw the white sails of schooners and sloops, saw the ships at anchor, the sailors at work in the rigging or out astride the spars, the round masts, the swinging motion of the hulls, the slender serpentine pennants, the large and small steamers in motion, the pilots in their pilot houses, the white wake left by the passage, the quick tremulous whirl of the wheels, the flags of all nations, the falling of them at sunset, the scallop-edged waves in the twilight, the ladled cups, the frolicsome crests and glistening, the stretch of far growing dimmer and dimmer, the gray walls of the granite storehouses on the docks, on the river, the shadowy group, the big steam tug closely flanked on each side by the barges, the hay boat, the belated lighter, on the neighboring shore the fires from the foundry chimneys burning high and glaringly into the night, casting their flicker of black, contrasted with wild red and yellow light over the tops of houses and down into the clefts of streets. These and all else were to me the same as they are to you. I loved well those cities, 
loved well the stately and rapid river. The men and women I saw were all near to me, others the same, others who looked back on me because I looked forward to them. The time will come, though I stop here today and tonight. So I'll stop there. Man, I can only hope that I see the same as he sees. And so with poetry, and the poet himself, and Whitman's grandiose self-narrative, in a sense, the very bridge that he sings, of course. Until at last, philosophy, not content with wondering about art and poetry, creative intuition, dissolves into poetry with Heidegger, for example, in his work, Building, Dwelling, Thinking. Here's where he arrives in part two of that short essay. In what way does building belong to dwelling? The answer to this question will clarify for us what building, understood by way of the essence of dwelling, really is. We limit ourselves to building in the sense of constructing things and inquire, what is a built thing? A bridge may serve as an example for our reflections. The bridge swings over the stream with ease and power. It does not just connect banks that are already there. The banks emerge as banks only as the bridge crosses the stream. The bridge expressly causes them to lie across from each other. One side is set off against the other by the bridge. Nor do the banks stretch along the stream as in different border strips of the dry land. With the banks, the bridge brings to the stream the one and the other expanse of the landscape lying behind them. It brings stream and bank and land into each other's neighborhood. The bridge gathers the earth as landscape around the stream. Thus it guides and attends the stream through the meadows. Resting upright in the stream's bed, the bridge piers bear the swing of the arches that leave the stream's waters to run their course. The waters may wander on quiet and gay. The sky's floods from storm or thaw may shoot past the piers in torrential waves. The bridge is ready for the sky's weather and its fickle nature. Even where the bridge covers the stream, it holds its flow up to the sky by taking it for a moment under the vaulted gateway and then setting it free once more. The bridge lets the stream run its course, and at the same time grants mortals their way, so that they may come and go from shore to shore. Bridges initiate in many ways. The city bridge leads from the precincts of the castle to the cathedral square. The river bridge near the, the country town brings wagons and horse teams to the surrounding villages. The old stone bridge's humble brook crossing gives to the harvest wagon its passage from the fields into the village and carries the lumber cart from the field path to the road. The highway bridge is tied into the network of long-distance traffic, paced and calculated for maximum yield. Always endeavor differently, the bridge initiates the lingering and hastening ways of men to and fro, so that they may get to other banks and in the end, as mortals, to the other side. Now in a high arch, now in a low, the bridge vaults over glen and stream. Whether mortals keep in mind this vaulting of the bridge's course or forget that they, always themselves on their way to the last bridge, are actually striving to surmount all that is common and unsound in them in order to bring themselves before the hailness of the divinities, the bridge gathers as a passage that crosses before the divinities, whether we explicitly think of and visibly give thanks for their presence, 
as in the figure of the saint of the bridge, or whether that divine presence is obstructed or even pushed wholly aside. The bridge gathers to itself in its own way earth and sky, divinities and mortals. I'll just stop there because I don't really know what he means by the fourfold, and that's coming up next. So anyway, try to delve in more next week and tackle contemporary philosopher Ian Bogost and those he leans on, David Foster Wallace and that Huizinga of the Magic Circle that I mentioned a few weeks ago. I'll try to talk about how they pose and address some of these matters of art and philosophy. But I think we should get back to Earthbound. Long story short, you give the diamond to the theater manager, and the runaway five are free. The cops might say, hey you guys, or something like that, but something tells Lucky that you'll need their help. They got you moving once before, so we'll see. Can I just note in passing how strange some of the humor gets in the sophisticated foreside? Strange even by Earthbound standards. There's this joke about five apples, taking one away so that there's four left. Some kind of pun on foresight, but then he says, oh, okay, so that number joke's no good. Let's try a pun joke that Pokey's made, Electra, is made to order. And then I guess he don't laugh again, so he has to realize that puns are no good either. But maybe it's just that his jokes aren't any good. Or maybe there's something I'm just not getting here. That's one of the guys unassuming local guys in Jackie's Cafe. And then outside, there's a, well, to all appearances, drunk, who then lets you know that he's just wallowing in his espresso. And that, of course, has got to be a vestige of the translation, which edited out the word bar into cafe in the first place. There's the businessman in the Monotoli building who asks you if you even know what solitaire is when you listen to a strange story about the solitaire tournament last night where he lost his shirt. Of course, that could mean any number of things. And then when you go into the elevator, you deal with the uh, elevator operator who tells you over and over not to stare at her hips. And so these strange jokes, they sort of blend into some strange language about, well, so after the Runaway 5 leave, if you pop back in real quick, you can catch a free show of Venus herself. And the announcer there says that he finds her sexy and that he would die happily just hearing her sing to him, which is different. Uh, and then there's her song and her fan, Mr. Spoon of the museum, who tries to climb on stage and is escorted out again by what looks like Pokey's bodyguards. So I'm not sure what's going on here. I would just again point out that uh, what you do in this game has some interesting consequences. So for example, the manager of the theater on making all that money with the diamond starts to hear her own heartbeat, which is surely a good start. Um, but then, just like in Tucson, after you free the Runaway Five there, you can see that there's a hapless boyfriend in the lobby. Same thing happens here 
enforce side. Uh, it looks like you're freeing the runaway five, let them out of the show that the uh, girlfriend and the boyfriend were looking forward to, and now they might split up as a result. It's also like in Threed, after you reopen the road, there's a cheating boyfriend who's caught by both of his girlfriends from both towns. Anyway, maybe most intriguing to think about a little more. Out of all that plethora of potential stories going on in Foresight is, of course, the uh, programmer's headquarters. And then one of the last people that you get to talk to in town now that the department store's reopened is a boy on the top floor playing the arcade game there. Tells you he wants to work for that company, Ape. And he asks you if you have any connections to those guys. Then he backtracks, as if one way to read it might be to rededicate himself to the work rather than trying to jump ahead to the recognition. One of the very, very last things you'll talk to before everything changes is that mouse down on the first floor of the department store who's got his sixth sense. The lights are about to go out. So, if anything was missing from Forside as a convincing replica of a big city, maybe it was mass transit. But for that, like I said, we'll just have to wait for the teleportation and the strange movements that will take place in Moonside next week. So for now, as they say there, hello and goodbye. Take care.